It's New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirsteb. Be sure to check out nhtalkradio.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get all our episodes on demand, including this weekly program, New Hampshire Headlines, which features reporters in the state. This week, welcoming Hadley Barndollar back to the show. She's over at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Welcome back. Thanks, AJ. Great to be here. So you had an awesome article that I just read on the site of NewHampshireBulletin.com on the front lines of New Hampshire's overdose crisis with a life-saving van. It, it, greatly written for starters. I just want to say that. You did a great Thank job so on the narrative of it, kind of humanizing the situation a lot more, which I think is important with something like this. Uh, but dive into it. Like, I don't even know where to start. Absolutely. So um, the seed for the story kind of came from back in the fall. I did a health journalism fellowship and we were um, graced by the presence of a man who uh, runs um, what is essentially like the country's only um, syringe um, like syringe use program, you know, in New York City where people can come and openly um, use drugs, you know, in this controlled setting, um, you know, to essentially reduce risk of overdose and deaths. Um, so, you know, he was talking all about harm reduction. And of course, you know, we hear the, tar- the term harm reduction, um, you know, used all the time lately. But I think my colleagues and I talked about how we didn't think that there was kind of like a resounding understanding, you know, among the general public of what exactly harm reduction is. Uh, oftentimes, it's kind of, you know, lumped in with recovery. And while harm reduction can certainly lead to recovery, um, you know, they're they're not one in the same. Um, and obviously, the best way to tell a story like that is being able to um, have an experience like I did um, on an evening in Rochester when the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition Um, brings their van on a weekly basis um, to Rochester, Concord, Manchester, Dover, and Somersworth. And they essentially set up for a couple of hours um, in in various locations in these cities, and they offer critical services to people who are using drugs. Um, Everything from fentanyl testing strips um, to kits for safer smoking, safer injection, um, safer snorting. Um, They offer, you know, general hygiene kits, um, basically anything under the sun that a person using drugs could need to be safer, um, stay infection-free, and ultimately stay alive, um, you know, the van stocks. So it was quite the experience that evening watching the staff and volunteers like interact with participants, and um, it was it was a really special experience to get to witness. There was one, one thing that was, that was very brief in your article that I thought was really important is it's also, I believe, been brought up by the governor this past week is the xylazine that's been getting into the drug supply recently. I did a, an interview on New Hampshire Headlines a month or two ago with Paul Kuno Booth, who was reporting for NHPR at the time, um, regarding this. And it's a big deal, and it's really dangerous for those that are in uh, commu- uh, vulnerable communities in the state. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think back a couple of years ago, we were saying fentanyl, not xylazine, right? We were saying, oh, you know, fentanyl is creeping into the to the heroin supply. Now in New Hampshire, fer- fentanyl has all but replaced, you know, heroin. Um, and now we have, you know, increasing contaminants. Um, reaching the drug supply, in this case, xylazine, which is, um, you know, on the streets typically referred to as Trank. Um, but it is a drug that veterinarians um, technically use to sedate um, ant- like larger animals. Um, and it has found its way into New Hampshire's drug supply. And what's scary about it is it does not respond to Narcan. 
Um, and there isn't a necessarily an easy way to test for it right now. Like fentanyl testing strips are widely available to people who use harm reduction programs. They can test their drug supply every time they use, um, you know, to determine the amount of fentanyl in it, um, presence of fentanyl. But xylazine test strips, um, as I, I was just told by the coalition, just came on the market, I think about a month ago, and obviously very much in demand and very hard to get. Um, so the harm reduction coalition here in, in New Hampshire was saying that's um, top of their list, trying to um, get strips for xylazine to be able to hand out to folks. Would you touch upon a bit on the importance of needles being provided and recycled afterwards? Because I feel like that is very important in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't think about when, you know, they think about injection drug use, you know, aside from the drug itself, you know, all of the terrible infections um, that can be associated with it, whether that be HIV, you know, whether that be hepatitis C, um, skin wounds, you know, and ultimately if they're if they're not treated and addressed, they can lead to all sorts of, of other different um, health issues. So the importance of using clean needles uh, is something that is like harm reduction 101. And um, these programs offer a syringe exchange um, and it's incentive based. You know, if, if you bring in your used syringes and turn them in, you get um, clean syringes in return. Um, so it's, it's basically all about keeping, you know, the tools that people are using as safe as possible and, you know, mitigating negative consequences. The, the, the idea that people are going to inject drugs regardless, but how can we make it as safe and healthy for them as possible? And it was something like a half a million syringes were collected last year, which is just an astronomical amount. It goes to show, like, hopefully you're not now seeing them in some of these communities just in the street around or being reused quite as often because of opportunities like this. Regardless of how you feel about the harm reduction programs overall, it's important that these used needles aren't just left around for children or animals and such to happen across. Absolutely. And that's something that they talk about as being, you know, community benefit and that's in robust syringe exchange programs that have really good return rates, um, you know, it ensures that, you know, needles aren't aren't on the streets and in playgrounds and fields, you know, and I think I want to give a shout out to the city of Dover, who I believe I was told just um, installed the very first public syringe exchange boxes um, in two locations, one in downtown and one by its community trail. Um, so that these are now public boxes that any anyone can utilize to dispose of syringes in, in these public places. Um, so that's another thing, as you mentioned, a, a wider community benefit of harm reduction services. And obviously something that's very important with these is um, services for people who want to get off drugs or programs and such for mental health because often these individuals that are on the street or almost on the street in many situations due to drug issues um, need services of various kinds. And obviously we've found in the past extremely aggressive um, you need to show up to a program approach isn't always successful. It seems like they're trying to take a, a softer, more, hey, we're here approach. Yeah, one thing that I thought was fascinating is, you know, the idea that they're not telling anybody to go to recovery or get clean. But if you want to, they have all the resources for you. You know, it's like it's really about meeting people where they're at kind of in their journey and and recognizing, you know, that harm reduction is possibly a step for someone, you know, into recovery, um, but also recognizing that recovery is not the end goal for everyone. You know, some people will continue to use drugs for their entire life. It doesn't mean their life has any less value. Um, you know, harm reduction allows them to continue to do that and be alive in a way that's infection free and dignified. Um, but I thought it was 
really fascinating how they say, you know, people usually ask us about where can I find a meeting? You know, how do I contact the 211 hotline? Um, those are some of the more typical questions that they get. But, you know, if someone does say, I'm, I'm ready for a recovery, they, they'll hook you up right away. They have all the connections, you know, all, all of the, the resources right there. And the more often you happen to see someone that, that's providing these resources, the more you become familiar, the more you feel comfortable with them. Hey, they're not going to narc on me to the cops and things like that if people are, are super paranoid with regards to what's going on. And and like I said, like often there are other things going on than just the drug addiction that, that yeah. these organizations are very adept at connecting people with, whether it's HHS, yeah. or local hospital, things like that. Yeah, I'll say a quote that didn't make it into my story, but something that I thought was was um, quite powerful was a program participant said that night when asked what would happen if these programs weren't available. He said everybody would be getting infections and dying. Um, so I think that is pretty much sums sums up, you know, what um, kind of the, the bread and butter of harm reduction is. So we'll just specifically point out the bottom of your article, which I will also link to the podcast version of the show at nhtalkradio.com. Since we're broadcasting Concord, Manchester region, New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition is available. If you want to, uh, let me just double check their website here before I say anything else, nhhrc.org. And if you're going to be, if you're listening in Manchester, it's Another Day Harm Reduction. If you want to learn more about them, they are on Facebook. Just search for Another Harm Harm, another day harm reduction. Their web, their phone numbers are in the bottom of the article. Once again, at nhtalkradio.com. All right, let's move over to what our federal delegation has been up to with regards to PFAS rebate tax issues and where that's going. Yeah, so this is some exciting news today that came out of the federal delegation. Um, and, and to start with some with some background, a couple weeks ago, I published a story that I had spent several weeks trying to get answers on um, because citizens were very confused and the state was being not very clear about the situation. And um, I was very proud of the story we were able to publish um, showing that um, people who had applied for the state's PFAS rebate program and received rebates um, in layman's terms they did work on their private wells to remediate PFAS, or they spent their own money to connect to a public water supply, and then the state reimbursed them for that. Um, These people received tax forms in the mail this tax season telling them that those rebates were considered federal uh, taxable income. And there was a whole, you know, a whole thing. What, you know, federal taxable income, you know, I I spent my own dollars to remediate this, um, you know, especially contamination that these folks did not cause. Um, They were, you know, doing their um, out-of-pocket expenses for and then being reimbursed by the state. Um, So there was, you know, a lot of confusion about that. What do I really do with the tax form? You know, is it actually federal taxable income? Uh, The state finally did come out with some guidance, and the guidance was that we don't give tax guidance (laughs) and um, that you need to confer with your, um, you know, your your tax professional. Um, So this was ultimately raised, you know, to the attention of the federal delegation, including Congressman Chris Pappas. And as of today, he officially um, introduced federal legislation that would designate PFAS rebates as non-taxable federal income. So essentially, he would be sparing people across the country in the future from what folks in New Hampshire just experienced. And also um, people in New Hampshire would be able to get a retroactive refund um, if they submit an amended filing. Um, So that legislation is now in the House of Representatives and and we'll be watching to see um, where it goes. 
Yeah, very important for residents of the state. And for those that aren't familiar with it, where where did this PFAS chemical leaks come from that ended up entering the water supply? So there is a lot of areas with PFAS contamination, but I think the one that has made the head uh, the headlines the most um, are the communities around the San Cobain um, Plastics uh, Manufacturing uh, Company, um, which touches Merrimack, Londonderry, Bedford, Hudson, and Litchfield. I think I got all of those. Um, so they basically the the company agreed uh, to a agreement with the state last year, what which. Um, we call the consent decree, um, which basically designates an area within those five towns where the company is now responsible to provide a permanent clean water solution. Um, it's about a thousand properties that are encompassed in that consent decree. Um, but the folks who are accessing this rebate program are people who were not within the consent decree who are dealing with contamination. Um, and I'll point out, it's really interesting. Um, the Department of Environmental Services did say to me that if these new federal PFAS standards that were introduced last month do go into effect, they expect to see a huge influx of New Hampshire residents, you know, applying for the rebate program because all of a sudden that would mean wells all over the state are, you know, higher than the allowable or the recommended PFAS standard. Yeah, it, especially as the state moves further and further away from manufacturing that was, was quite prevalent in New England up until 50 years ago, basically, back during the uh, the 80s and 90s. I, I mean, you, you go up north, and this is, is kind of maybe going on a tangent, but I mean, there used, there used to be tons of factories all over the state. And I grew up in Maine. There, I mean, the whole northern half of the state was based around manufacturing and lumber industries that just don't exist anymore. So uh, people are purchasing homes in different parts of the state. It's decades later and they're going, oh, no, we now have all these chemicals in our water that we did not know mm. were there, and it's gotten so much attention the last couple of years, fortunately. But if you think you're going to be taxed on it and you're not, you don't know exactly where the money's going to come from, it's terribly confusing for the general consumer. Yeah, and, and not just PFAS either. I mean, I have some ongoing projects I'm working on, you know, all, all sorts of different types of contaminants and chemicals, you know, that have, um, you know, made its home, you know, in our homes as a result of, you know, um, historical manufacturing and mills and, and you you name it. And um, a lot of it's really hidden, but, you know, can be very in insidious. And PFAS is an ex it's just is an example of one of many. All right, let's move over for the last five minutes here to hydrogen. New Hampshire sits on uh, sits out on three point six billion dollars in, in funding, possibly with a proposal. What what exactly is is this talking about? And then we will dive into what exactly the importance of hydrogen production is uh, here for New Hampshire. Sure. So those of us that that report on climate change and clean energy, you know, we continuously. Um, you know, see examples of how, of how New Hampshire is furthering its position in New England as an outlier on these issues. Um, while many of the other New England states um, have implemented, you know, uh, robust climate action plan, greenhouse gas emission requirements, and in a lot of ways joined together and mirrored what each other is doing, um, New Hampshire has, has not taken that route. And the latest example is um, an effort stemming back about a year ago, but the final federal proposal was just submitted last week. Seven Northeast states um, submitted a $3.6 billion proposal to the federal government um, to get a share of 
funding for what the, the government wants to essentially develop six to 10 clean hydrogen hubs around the region. And there are currently upwards of 20 of these entities competing for their share of the federal funding. So we have one here in the Northeast, which is all of New England, minus New Hampshire, um, New York and New Jersey. They are competing for a share of the funding to essentially create a really robust hydrogen um, infrastructure and in um, ecosystem here. And and when I say hydrogen, it's um, it's the conversation around hydrogen itself is really interesting. I don't think we'll have time to get all into that. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of bid hydrogen as the fuel of the future in a way um, in that it is carbon neutral. Um, it, it does not produce um, carbon dioxide, which is, you know, a ma main um, main culprit of global warming. Um, so that that's great. But, you know, there, there are also some some other sides of it that may not be so great as critics have pointed out so that aside um yes basically you know there was this huge multi-billion dollar effort um that seven states signed on to and, and new hampshire opted not to be part of it so is it to utilize hydrogen in, in various ways which basically is not really used at all in the state or is it a matter of also production of it so hydrogen has become like hydrogen hype in Europe. You know, Europe like is like is all about hydrogen right now. And it's definitely making its making its way into the conversation in the United States. I mean, the federal government is is dedicating eight billion dollars to this, you know, to set up six to ten of these hubs um, around around the country. And yes, yeah, so it, it would be everything from, you know, production to, um, you know, identifying sectors that could use hydrogen to decarbonize. Um, and specifically, I think the proposal said there would be um, projects in all seven of the states that um, that applied for the grant. So what are some ways that is especially in other New England states that they're currently using hydrogen energy? Because basically the only thing I've really seen it at all in is, is automobiles, which is very limited to very niche vehicles that are utilizing it. But it, because of its efficiency, like buses and such, I, I've heard of using it. Well, yeah. So, um, transport is like especially like light duty transport they talk about that's like a really hard sector to decarbonize um and something that hydrogen could could definitely assist with um but it, it could be you know people talk about hydrogen powering po power plants you know and that's a that's a whole nother conversation but it, it it can be made as a clean fuel to to be used for all sorts of different types of energy um i will say it's really interesting um that in New Hampshire, we do have a hydrogen project right here on our home turf um, in Groveton, a, a, a Utah-based company called Q Energy, or Q Hydrogen, sorry, um, is currently in the process of building what they say is the world's first power plant uh, powered by clear, clean hydrogen um, in what is uh, a former paper mill. They're, they're redeveloping that, and that project is supposed to be underway uh, this summer. So ironically, we, we do have um, you know, hydrogen project um, ongoing right here in the Granite State. So about 30 seconds. I mean, what's the governor's stance on this matter? So I got to ask the governor about this yesterday um, after executive council and his his response was he loves hydrogen. He loves the idea of hydrogen, um, low cost solutions, you know, industry, economic development. Um, but he deferred basically all questions about the clean hydrogen hub to the Department of Energy. Um, he said that it was not his individual decision um, whether to join this regional initiative or not. And the Department of Energy said um, that they had opted not to join at this time uh, because 
when joining regional initiatives, they look at how it pairs with state policy goals. And at, at this time, that does not appear to be in New Hampshire state policy goal. We'll have to keep watching that going forward because uh, with each election, the, the waves of support and the lack of support for various matters definitely changes. All right, Hadley Barndollar, reporter over at New Hampshire Bulletin, thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thanks so much, AJ. I'll see you next time. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them and NHTalkRadio.com to get more from me. You're listening to New Hampshire Headlines and WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten.